You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Hi, Real Life family. How are you? Glad you're here with us. Wanted to just remind you, next week is kind of a big day in the life of you as a Christian. We call it Resurrection Sunday. And you are welcome to come here. Um, We won't be here. You're welcome to come here if you want. Um, we're all going to be at Beasley Coliseum in Pullman, and it's going to be rocking. So um, that's probably where you're going to want to be. And if you come here, and you're going to be like, oh, man, uh, I missed out. You, yeah, you did. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Both of our campuses are going to come together. We're going to have just an awesome celebration service there, and I'm really excited. i got to be honest with you. Last year, our Easter service... It sucked. It did. Let's be honest. That's what it did. Um, We're making up for that this year. It's going to be real good. So, I want to invite you to that uh, 10 a.m. service so you don't even have to change the time that you come to church. I love you that much. All the other services, I don't. You guys, you're the only ones that I love that much. Uh, We are in our final week of Lent. So for those of you that gave up Dairy Queen for Lent, Thursday is your magical day. It's the last day of Lent. And then you can just go to Dairy Queen and tie one on. Um, I hope you do. Just lay under the soft serve machine. (laughs) That's the end of the season. I'm excited for you to be able to do that. Um, We're closing in on the, this is day six of the last week of Jesus's life, and um, I'm excited about this particular sermon because I feel like this is one that, there's a ton of scripture about this period. So we're moving from the Last Supper into the arrest and the trial, uh, and that crosses over from um, one day into another because that happens over uh, midnight. So... um, we're gonna, we have a ton of text about this, so there's no way to do the whole story well. I want to take one thread of the story and weave it through what we're seeing. Now, this is one of my favorite parts. If it's not your favorite part, um, I'm sorry, but um, I'm preaching and you're not. And so uh, next year, good news, we, Lent comes every year, so next year you can do it. <laughs> No, no. Okay. So, all right. So yeah, no, but maybe next year, you know, we'll take, we'll have another opportunity to take a run at this and maybe then, but this is something that's particularly important to me. We're going to begin the story in John chapter 18. This is as Jesus is finishing up his prayer in the garden and they're about ready to arrest him. So let's start in the text. When he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, and and I want to stop here and point this out. They always point him out as the one who betrayed Jesus, right? Judas, the traitor. Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Judas, the betrayer. Why? Here's why. Because if you give this story to any Jew, they will never pick Judas as the betrayer. Peter's the betrayer. And here's why. Judas, though misguided, and we've talked about this already in this series, is trying to force Jesus to move this kingdom thing along. That's what he's trying to do. He's not actually trying to get him killed. He's trying to force Jesus to rise up as Messiah and usher in the kingdom. That's what he's trying to do. 
which is why he's so devastated when he figures out that he was wrong. Peter just bold-faced denies his rabbi. It is the worst thing that you could do. And especially after he's like, oh, Jesus, I would never, I'll die for you. Which I think most of us in this room, if we were asked, would you die for Jesus? Most of us would say, yeah, we would. The question is, will you live for him? And that's a whole different ball game, right? That's a whole different ball game. And so we want to point this out, Judas the betrayer. And at the end of this sermon, I want to land on why Peter isn't the betrayer and Judas is. Okay, so that's where we're headed. But uh, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, I want to point that out again. Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. Like, I, this, is a, this is a scene in the movie that I actually want to see. The, the, Jesus is like, I am he. <laughs> like, there's... What? What, ha what happened there? <laughs> like, put yourself in the story. That don't make no sense, right? Like, think about it. There's, there's scenes in the Bible, you know this, there's scenes in the Bible that you want to see. Some of them for me, some of my favorites. Jonah and the whale. Or it's a big fish, not a whale. It's just a big fish. But the fish is big enough, it's a large enough fish that he's able to stay alive in the stomach of the fish three days. And the Bible says that it yaks him up onto the shore. Well, the shore is gently sloped, how far back is that? Like how far? Like how, how far does he fly? I want to see that part of the movie. I, it's one I want to see. That one, in, uh, like when Jesus is rejected at Nazareth and it says they drive him out of the city and they're going to throw him over the cliff and stone him. And he turns around and walks through the crowd, the end of the story. What? Is it like, I'm not the Messiah you're looking for. <laughs> like what, what, what even is that? What happens there? This is another one of those moments where I'm like, what? I am he. <sighs> like what? All of them, soldiers, men with weapons and stuff, fall back. Like what, hap what happened? And so Jesus asks them again, as they're picking themselves up apparently, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I've not lost one of those you gave me. And then Simon Peter, who had a sword. By the way, one of the things that's really cool about Peter is that Jesus changes his name, right? His name is Simon. Jesus changes his name to Peter, which means rock, which is hysterical because Peter's anything but stable. What's interesting in the Gospels is that when he does the right thing, Jesus calls him Peter. When he does the wrong thing, Jesus calls him Simon. In this story, he's called both. Like, Anytime that we see him called Simon Peter, we know that there's something, there's a, like a really difficult decision that he's going to make, and it's going to be a definer for him. 
Okay? So Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. Now, let's, before we move on, back up, back up to that slide. Okay, so I want to stay here for a minute and talk about this. There are two kinds of swords in the ancient world. One is called the rhomboi. Let me hear you say rhomboi. Romboy is the Roman short sword. It's 18 inches long. It's the one that they used in combat when they were, had their shields and they had a little etch here and they would move together as a unit, stick it out and kill people. This is the Romboy. The other one is called a Sicari. Say Sicari. A Sicari is a four inch dagger. And this is really important because the Sicari in the zealot movement, there was a, and we know Jesus has at least two zealots in his group. In the zealot movement, there was a subset of the zealots called the Sikarim, and the Sikarim were particularly violent. They believed that the way to bring the kingdom of God was to usher it in through military force. And so what they would do is they would get into a crowded area and they would walk up behind Roman soldiers because Roman soldiers didn't have armor in the rear. That's a design by Rome to keep them from retreating. They would walk up behind them. They would have a dagger in their sleeve, slip it out, stick it in their kidneys, slip it back up and walk away. And before anybody knew what had happened, Roman soldiers on the ground bleeding out. These guys are violent. Now, take a stab at which one you think. <laughs> did you like what I did there? I didn't even realize I did that until I said it already. I was a, never mind. Which one do you think Peter has here? He has the dagger. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you've watched The Passion of the Christ, and this is a popular movie this time of year, and I highly recommend it, probably one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Very moving. Couldn't talk for a week after it. This is a very dramatic moment in that movie where Peter draws the sword and it's very big and it's like a swing and a miss. Like that's kind of how we view this. I was trying to take your whole head off, but you ducked. So I just got your ear. I guess that'll have to be okay. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is Peter with his dagger is like, like that's, that's what's happening here. And this is important because that raises a whole nother question. What in the world is he doing? <laughs> like if I, if I had a dagger, the four inch dagger, the ear is not what I would go for, right? I would like, I'd try to something, give me something vital, not the ear. Well, here's what's happening. Here's what's happening. Jesus, in this whole last week, and remember the series that we've been going through, Jesus has been making an indictment on the temple system, how it's corrupt. It's morally bankrupt. This is horrible. And Peter is saying, okay, Jesus, I get it. These guys that work at the temple, they're the enemy. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to maim him because if he's physically deformed, he can't serve in the temple. So Peter's not trying to kill him. He's trying to remove him from temple service. And Malchus is a big deal. Just so that you know, this isn't like just some Joblo slave. Malchus would be like the equivalent of the chief of staff in our government. Like he's a high level official and secretary of defense maybe. Like he's a big one. He's in the cabinet, right? And Peter has rightly identified the enemy and is trying in his own way to usher in the kingdom. Okay, Jesus, we're ready. We're taking these guys out. What does 
Jesus do? Like, put yourself in the, in the position of Peter here. If, if this isn't the way that the kingdom comes, then, then I don't know what in the world we're doing here, right? So let's read on. It says, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink from the cup that the Father has given me? And what we know is that Peter, or Jesus, will actually take the ear off the ground and heal it so that Malchus can go back and serve in the temple. Like Jesus has been given this harsh indictment all week. But what Jesus is trying to tell Peter is, look, brother, that is not how the kingdom comes. You don't have the right to take matters into your own hands, Peter. That's not how the kingdom comes. By the way, I just finished a phenomenal book called Unoffendable. I highly recommend that you read it um, by Brant Hansen. Great book. And what he talks about in there is how you and I don't have the right to be offended. We don't have the right to get angry. And I know that the rebuttal to that is, well, but we can get angry at sin. No, no, you can't. You don't have that right. Well, God gets angry at sin and we should get angry at the things that make God angry. No, you shouldn't. God has the right to do all kinds of things that we don't get to do, like judge like have wrath. Why? Because his character can handle it. And mine can't. God will take care of bringing his kingdom crashing into earth. And he does. What we often do is say, but he needs my help. Nope. No, he does not. You need his help. <laughs> We don't need his help. And Peter is trying to help God bring the kingdom. And he does it the wrong way. And all of a sudden, Peter's like confused. I don't, I don't understand what's happening here. So they arrest him. They take him to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. And they put him on trial. Okay? Now, it says that Peter goes to the courtyard of the house of Caiaphas while he's on trial. And Peter is out in the courtyard and they're around a fire and he denies Jesus three times, right? So I want to show you uh, a picture of a couple of pictures of what this would look like. This is actually, let's throw picture one up. This is from um, a place called the Wolves Museum in Jerusalem. It's a model of a house that was actually there. I believe, um, and most people who have a brain believe, um, you don't have to agree with me, but most people who have a brain do, um, that this is the actual location for the trial of Jesus, not the place that's known as the, the Church of the Rooster, which is hysterical. It's got a big golden rooster on it. I call it the chicken church, but it's the wrong spot, um, unfortunately. This place, this, so the centerpiece here would be the courtyard. That's an open air courtyard in the center. That's where Peter is, okay? This upper left room, now those circles wouldn't have been there in the first century. Those are just there for you to see in there. Those, uh, the, the upper left room is the, the meeting room. That's where the Sanhedrin would have met to put, to have the trial with Jesus, okay? Does that make sense? 
Now I want you to pay attention to the little model of the lady sitting on a bench in the left-hand side of the courtyard. Do you see that? We're going to zoom in on her. Okay. So I want to zoom in on that. Notice the windows that are there between the courtyard and the meeting room. Are you with me? So Jesus is in the meeting room. Peter is out in the courtyard and he's denying Jesus. Now with that in mind, I want to read Luke chapter 22, verses 60 to 62. Check this out. This is the third time that Peter denies Jesus. Peter replied, man, I <laughs> love that. Oh man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Now look at the next sentence. And the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. ever been in that position? You ever been in the position where you blew it and you knew you blew it and there was no denying that you blew it and you know God's looking at you going, hey, um, you blew it. I, I want you to know there is never, ever Ever going to be something that you do that's sin, that's a mistake, a mess up, a blunder. You will never do anything that God doesn't see. Let's read on. And then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Ugh. This passage resonates with me because I stood in that position where I've blown it so bad and everybody around me knows that I blew it and God knows that I blew it and I'm sitting there trying to figure out a way in my head to spin the story so it wasn't quite as bad of a blow it as I thought it was going to be, you know, but it's always worse than I tell it. At this point, what happens to Peter, and this is really significant, he is no longer a disciple. He has rejected his rabbi, and he's done, which is why when Jesus comes out of the tomb, he says to Mary, go and get the disciples and Peter. Because Peter's not a disciple anymore. He's bailed out. He stopped being part of the program. He opted out. This is too hard. And Jesus saw him do it. You know what I love about that moment is to understand that moment in light of John 21. John 21, Peter is at his mother-in-law's house in Capernaum and he's with some of the guys and they come with me to Israel. We'll go there. We'll stand right there. He says, I'm going to go fishing. So they go out and they go fishing. They fish, they don't catch anything. And then there's this guy on the shore that's got two fish cooking over a fire of burning coals, which raises a question, why do I need to know that detail? And it's another sermon for another day, but that's important. Peter sees and recognizes that it's Jesus and he jumps up out of the water, gets on his, his outer garment and then runs in to the shore. And I want to pick up the story there because Jesus has this sweet, sweet, sweet moment with Peter that, for me, standing in my own moments of denial is really profound. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, 
Do you love me more than these? Now let's talk about this for a second. There's lots of words for love. You guys know this in the Greek. Jesus chooses the word agape here, which is unconditional love. Do you unconditionally love me? Well, the answer for Peter is no. I can't say that. I just proved that I don't unconditionally love you, right? So how does he respond? Let's read on. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I phileo you. I really, really, really care about you a lot. Like, I really do. Like, I, I like you a lot, right? If you've been married like 15, 20 years, you know the statement, I will always love you, but I'm not sure I like you right now. You've, you're familiar with that phrase, right? Some of you guys are like, can I laugh at that? <laughs> Honey, am I allowed to laugh? <laughs> That's called knowing laughter. I know that. He said, you know that I phileo you. And so Jesus said, feed my lambs. And again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John. By the way, what's he calling him? Simon. Do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Same thing. Do you agape me? Yeah, I phileo you. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? He changes his word. Now, be clear. Jesus and Peter are not speaking Greek. They're speaking Hebrew. But John is writing it in Greek, and he's making a point. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you phileo me? Not that he asked him three times, but in the third time, he says, I'm going to use your word against you. Does that make sense? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. What I love about this moment is Jesus' unrelenting determination to forgive the worst possible mistake that Peter could make. Now, there's been a lot made of like three, why does he ask him three times? Maybe it's one time for each one of the denials. Maybe uh, the feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, feed my lambs, whatever, like those phrases, all that stuff. That's all really interesting and it's good and it's valuable. Nothing wrong with that. But here's where I want to land because here's what's particularly significant to me. There is no f distance that you've traveled in your sin that Jesus will not unrelentingly pursue you to call you out of. You can't sin so bad that Jesus won't forgive you. And Peter, because he's willing to accept the forgiveness, Judas, same offer of forgiveness for him, like he, God's not nice to Peter and mean to Judas. Judas can't accept it, and it destroys him. He can't accept that he's ever going to be anything other than bad. Peter, because he accepts the forgiveness of Jesus, becomes one of the foundation stones of your and I's faith. Like, he's a hero in our Christianity because of this moment where Jesus forgives, but he forgives himself. Like, maybe that's the question. is not even so much whether or not Jesus is willing to forgive you, but are you willing to forgive yourself? I had this, uh, like most pastors, um, I did a tour of duty in youth ministry, and I call it a tour of duty because I feel like most teenagers are vermin, um, <laughs> which is why I'm not in the youth ministry today. <laughs> 
I have four kids. Three of them either are or have been teenagers, and one of them will be this year. So I got some reps with teenagers. I know what I'm talking about. Um, but I had this gal while I was in youth ministry. She was uh, <coughs> 18 years old, came to know the Lord in her senior year of high school, and was doing really well in her faith. She was growing and, and doing well. And then uh, as a senior trip, her and a bunch of her 18-year-old friends went to Mexico to celebrate their um, impending high school graduation. Probably they were worshiping and praying most of the time. <laughs> nope. Uh, apparently it was bad, and when she came back, she just didn't show up anymore for like a couple of months. And I was like, what is going on with you? What is going on with you? Where have you been when she finally shows up? She wouldn't even look at me in the eye. Now here's my general rule of thumb with teenagers. When you're talking to me, look me in the eye for two reasons. One is because if you refuse to look me in the eye, something's wrong with you, and I know it, and then we're going to have to deal with it, right? But if you look me in the eye, I can see far enough into your soul to know if there's something wrong with you, so you can't fake it, so we're going to deal with it. So either way, if you're going to talk to me, look me in the eye, and we're going to deal with the truth, right? Whatever the truth is, the truth is. We'll, we'll deal with that, but don't pretend like you can get around it. I love you too much. So she wouldn't look me in the eye, and I was like, what's going on with you? What happened? And she goes, God doesn't love me anymore. I said, what? What are you talking about? Well, when we were in Mexico, and she starts to lay out this story, and she was right. It was bad. <laughs> I was like, creative, but what? Like, bad. It was bad. Like, these are things that I never would have... I'm pretty devious in my mind. And I was like, wow, that's, that's impressive um, level of deviousness. So she just shame, just full of shame, full of regret. You know this moment. Maybe you've experienced it in your own life. So I asked her, I said, when, where, where does... God say that he loves you? She says, well, he says it in the Bible. I said, good, we're one for one. I said, when was the Bible written? Before you were born or after you were born? She said, well, it was written way before I was born. I said, we're two for two. When God said that he loved you, how much did he know? Well, he knows like everything. I said, I know. He's really smart. Like, in fact, the Bible says that before time began, God told you he knew you and that he loved you. And I said, here's why this all matters. Because before time began, God saw you would be standing here having this conversation with me, feeling what you feel. And that's when he said, I know you and I love you. I've seen everything and I love you anyway. 
And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. We take communion every week as a church. So if you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake in communion. But we want you to hold those elements till the end, and we'll take them all together. So I want to give you some implications here. Now, implications are just simply things that as we put together this sermon, we thought these were things that would be particularly important for us to land on. If for you, this sermon is hitting you in other places, that's okay too. The Holy Spirit's going to work in your heart as much or more as he works in mine. So wherever the Lord is helping it land for you is good. Okay? But I want to give you three things that I think are particularly important. Okay? Implication number one. Jesus will never support dominance, coercion, or manipulation in the name of the kingdom. That's not how the kingdom of God moves. So no matter where you find it, when you find people dominating, coercing, or manipulating other people, that is not the kingdom of God. Whether that's in churches or homes, Uh, I could talk all day about that. When husbands or wives try to dominate or coerce or manipulate their spouses, it's wrong. It's wrong. Sin. That's not the kingdom. Implication number two. There will never be a time when God misses or doesn't see our mistakes. There will never be a time where you do something wrong and God's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't notice. I wasn't really paying attention. God sees every single thing we do. Maybe you can relate to Peter looking at Jesus through the window. But that makes this third implication really important. There will never be a mistake God won't forgive. The question is whether or not we can forgive ourselves. God will forgive you. In fact, the Bible says very clearly this is the promise of God. When you repent, God is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness, all of it, every bit of it, which is so critical because you and I got to understand that the thing that gave Peter the ability to be the preacher on the day of Pentecost, the ability to be one of the first leaders in the church, the ability to be one of the people that actually founded Christianity, the thing that gave him that ability was his ability to own and receive and accept the forgiveness of God. Yes, it's God's grace, it's all that. Yes, that's essential, but every single one of us, every single one of us is given God's grace. Why then do we think that we're defined by our mistakes? That's not what God says you are. He's seen them all. By the way, he sees the ones you're going to make tomorrow and the ones you're going to make in six months and the ones you're going to make in 2051. Some of you in the room are like, in 2051, I will not make any more mistakes because I'd be 187. (laughs) Even if I'm still alive, I won't have the energy to mess up. (laughs) That's funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. (laughs) There's no place that you can run where God's grace can't find you. And because of that, We want to get called back into communion. This 
sacrifice of laying our life down that reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So for whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the model of Peter's mistake and Jesus' forgiveness and the reality that you see and you know and you love us anyway. And you already knew before you ever made the claim that you were going to love us no matter what, you knew what that would entail. And you chose to do it anyway. Lord, thank you for being that kind of God. Thank you so much for the example of Jesus. And Lord, may we as his body be a model of what it means to be ultimately forgiving to the people around us. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.